Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for engaging conversations about the topics that matter most in our culture. If you love nuance, if you want to better understand different points of view, if you're tired of the screamers taking all the oxygen out of the room, if you'll enjoy edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me, you love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. We are so grateful to our growing community of folks who are participating in our program. Just this week, we received the nicest review on Apple Podcasts from Adrian. She said, what a fabulous conversation on the challenges of trying to balance work, life, and faith. Del Walters brings refreshing frankness and openness to this difficulty we all face, no matter if we work in the newsroom or the mailroom. Thanks, Jessica and Corey, for putting together such an engaging pod. I feel better just for listening. And Adrian, I feel better for from getting such a nice note. Uh, we're grateful for the feedback. We also received some constructive criticism this last week as well, and it's all welcome in good faith. And with that, I am your host and glad to be crossing the divide with Jessica Stone. Jess, how you doing? Any updates you can share on some of your friend's status and what's what's happening in Afghanistan? We are moment to moment trying to get him into the airport. So okay. keep the prayers coming. Yeah, yeah, thanks. We appreciate you staying in touch, staying on top of that. I know you've been doing some some great reporting uh, on BNC with with Dell actually. That's so that's uh, that's it's uh, helpful for us. Our guest today, I am so glad he's here. Jamal Watkins is the senior vice president of strategy and advancement at the NAACP. Prior to his service with NAACP, Jamal held leadership positions with a number of organizations dedicated to community organizing and civil and human rights, including the AFL-CIO, Service Employees International Union, the Center for Social Inclusion and Amnesty International, among other volunteer efforts. Along the way, our guest has been involved in politics, communications, education, and fundraising. And from everything I've learned about him, Jamal is a truly fascinating, admirable person that we're grateful to be able to speak with today. Jamal, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I am great, Corey. It is a pleasure to be with you and Jessica. And, and, and I say that with sort of mixed emotions. When I think about you know, the state of the globe, whether you're talking about what's happening in Afghanistan, or even the plight here in the US as it relates to COVID-19 and the rise of the Delta variant, we're facing some very stark realities that really questions how we approach things, not only from you know, our community's perspective, but also as we think about race, class, and really our perspective on what it means to be a democracy um, here and abroad. So happy we're having this conversation, but I know that the backdrop for many is really, in some cases, daunting, and in other cases, chaotic. Yeah, for sure. I, well, I'd like to start by doing something a little different, um, by sharing a poem that I think is very meaningful to you. Um, I'll give it a read, and, and if you know it, uh, don't, don't hesitate to jump in. But then it, it's uh, brief but powerful. Uh, I'd love for you to tell us about the poem, what it means, not just to you, but for all of us. Out of the night that covers me, Black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. 
In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Well, you, you picked a good one. Invictus, I, I know pretty much by heart. And when I think of you know this notion of you know even how I started off with you know for many of us we're coming out of or in sort of a dark place and I say that not to be flip but when we think about you know the last couple of years in this country here in the U.S. the political divides that have been racialized the impact of the economic crisis because of COVID the the saga connected to policing, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, when you think about all of the, the, I would say, community experiences we have had over the past few years, and you then connect that to a former president and what I would call a regime that led to January 6th chaos here in the nation's capital where I live, you start to get to a place where we have to provide folks with the therefore what. What are the options that get us out of the pit, if you will? What are the things that actually unite us and move us forward? And at the same time, demonstrate that we are the masters of our fate, the captains of our soul, as it relates to our political realities. And so in many ways, you know, what Invictus I think speaks to is a, is a, a, a call to action in a way that's both personal and pragmatic, but acknowledges that there's work to be done because when I hear the term captain, that means that you are steering a ship and that probably means there are others on this ship and you're in waters that may or may not be charted. And so there's a dynamic there. It's not smooth sailing, if you will. And so that implies work. And I think for organizations like the NAACP with whom I'm employed with, there is a 112 year rich history of many community captains. We are a volunteer advocacy organization based throughout the United States, the District of Columbia, and in places like Japan, Korea, and other places where there are military outposts. We have members who have to serve as our captains for our agenda that's really rooted in this notion of racial equity, civic engagement, and really driving supportive policies and institutions that right-size the direction we're headed in that makes the ship move in the right direction. And so I think as we, you know, engage, what I'm what I'm really cognizant of is that in this moment, like any other moment in history, the people matter the most. The people have to really own in the direction and take the lead on the direction of this country and in how we show up in the globe. And that for NACP in particular is where we spend the most of our investment in energy. Well, you, you intuitively touched upon many of the subjects that we'd like to dive into a little bit more, but that poem uh, I heard you use as, as um, the scripture, if you will, or the springboard for a speech you gave in 2018 to NAACP members. It reminded me of the phrase equipping the saints. I was really inspired. And then when I read the poem and learned about the poet, great poet, William Ernest Henley, he um, 
he wrote this at the end of a long debilitating illness and it just it, it almost brought me to tears when I um, when I read the full poem. Uh, I, I'd like to learn a little bit more about your own formation. You have, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't help but chuckle. You grew up in a region just to the north of where I currently live and where the minority leader of the house, Kevin McCarthy, currently <laughs> represents. <laughs> it's quite a distinction. Uh, but in all seriousness, how did growing up in Bakersfield uh, I think, do I remember this correctly? Your mom, Wanda, Wanda West, the, the son of Wanda West, how did that influence what you ended up studying at Stanford and then in graduate school at NYU, as well as, you know, what you've been doing in your life's work? Well, you know, I would say that my, my father, Asa Watkins, my mother, Wanda West, being a child in California, there's a couple of realities. One is that the state, as you know, because you live in California, is massive. And in many ways, I, I figured I grew up in a small town of you know, 300,000. I think now the Metro is at around 800,000, but by any other standards in other states, that's a, a pretty sizable city or community or population. And of course, in a community like Bakersfield, California, you deal with the intersection of you know, reality. And I would say that as a, as a teenager, growing up, I saw a few things. So you saw the conservative right, if you will, really, you know, hunker down and say, you know, that in many ways, their politics was a framework that the country should be focusing in on. And so I would say the, the California Reagan folks, if you will, live in the Valley, uh, the Central Valley of California. But then you saw another reality. And in high school, I witnessed migrant seasonal farm workers being sprayed by pesticides in fields. Wow. And because they were undocumented, you know, many were not getting access to health care. And for their children, who in some cases were my classmates, were almost in this bubble of being an insider outsider. And you saw Congress persons like Judy Chu, who's now in this, the US, you know, Congress, step in the gap then as a state ledge leader and say, if you're going to spray these human beings, spray me. And so growing up in a space where, you know, now Kevin McCarthy, who is, um, you know, a minority leader on the House side, and you have this sort of nexus, I realized that this is actually America, where you can have the haves and the have-nots, the documented and the undocumented, various communities intersect. And in many ways, the struggle for the soul of this country is around who do we prioritize and who do we invest in? And I would say my parents have been very clear because they both are SEIU retirees, so they had good union jobs, that in many ways, if we don't invest in community, in working community, in families and in people, then we miss the mark no matter what your, your value system may purport to be or no matter what your connectivity is to a political party. So I would argue my upbringing in California taught me a lot about being in a massive state, if you will, that's considered liberal, but experiencing conservative tensions, issues around immigration, and other issues around race and class that even in a state as great as California, then growing up and even now, we haven't fully figured out. Yeah. You mentioned a lot about um, your parents 
background in in union work and uh that really was their life's work it also really it was a big factor in your own development uh jamal you worked for quite a few of them seiu afl cio but you also spent some time with amnesty international and you know you talk about building community what would you say were the main tools that you got from that background in order to organize people and communicate messages effectively across peoples I think that's a really good question. I would I would lift up the framework of thinking globally, but acting locally. And, and it's not so much thinking globally as international only, but think outside of your own community in terms of what makes most sense, what value systems should be lifted up, and the types of solutions and interventions that make you know, people whole, and then apply that to your local context. Because what I realize, and I think many community members, you know, have to come to terms with this is you may live in a community that is economically okay. You may live in a community that feels politically stable. You may live in a household in a reality that you haven't had to face much adversity. But when you think outside of your own reality and think more broadly or globally, you start to take into account, well, you know, if I'm not experiencing economic hardship, but I know that given COVID, for example, there are hundreds of thousands of people who have lost their jobs, who are struggling to make ends meet, businesses that have disappeared, sole proprietorships and larger businesses alike. When you start to think about that impact and how it actually impacts all of us, personally, I may be doing okay, but if the rest of the community around me or my state or the country is at a crossroads, what can I then do locally to make sure that they're being taken care of? Because at the end of the day, there is some type of impact that I or my family may potentially see. And so growing up, I had that sense of really thinking about a bigger picture reality and then figuring out locally how you can do your best and apply yourself to get work done. And I would argue a gift for me was going you know, to my undergraduate institution at Stanford where you ended up again in this nexus of very smart people, wealthy families, folks who are really on the cutting edge. Condoleezza Rice was the provost at the time when I was there. And then you also see the workers not actually making a livable wage. And the workers on campus actually struggling to find their voice. So you'd have students organizing with workers to provide better supports alongside professors who are advising presidents and congresspersons. And so you realize like that thinking bigger picture, but doing it locally mattered. And so for me, I think that's the framework that I still carry with me to this day. And that really resonates within all of the organizations I've worked for, for the most part, Amnesty International, the labor unions, et cetera. What if any role did the church or a church play in your upbringing and your sense of community? And what role does it play now? So I grew up in a strong faith community, um, uh, you know, raised as a Baptist. And in terms of the, the church, I would argue, and, and I mean, this sort of connects with some in very different ways, is that, you know, my family's theology is rooted in a liberation theology, meaning how do you look at faith and the faith community and scripture in a way where going back to sort of the Invictus piece that you are the, you know, the captain of your soul, if you will, the master of your fate, and really using that 
power in a way that transforms not only your personal life, but the community and individuals around you. And not to sound um, too spiritual, theoretical, ideological, but it really, I think in many ways, the faith community I grew up in, in Bakersfield, California, and then of course, carrying that beyond was rooted in this notion that you have to take care of the least of these. So in undergrad, I studied um, philosophy and John Rawls was one of the most interesting philosophers among many. And that notion that if in a society, we don't have infrastructure, capacity, and policies that take care of the have nots, the least of these, if you will, which aligns with my faith, then we've gotten it wrong. And I would argue in many ways, this nation wrestles with that. When you talk about unemployment insurance, that is a least of these framework. That's folks who have, for better or for worse, fallen on hard times, and so we provide insurance. That's a policy, it's very pragmatic. When you think about the nutrition programs under the SNAP program, a lot of folks call them food stamps or food benefits. That's for the least of these, folks who can't make ends meet to meet the, the food needs and the hunger needs of their families. I think we as a nation in many ways have seen theology and faith play out in different ways, but the question becomes what's the dominant theology? And for me, growing up in a liberation theology family, but also one that really focused in on sort of an ecumenical framework really speaks to the work that I do now and the communities that I seek out now in order to make change happen in this nation. You're speaking my language. I, I the last 20 years, especially, well, I grew up in a very observant Jewish home, but the last 20 years, about 20 years ago, I became a Christian, first 10 years of which uh, after I became a Christian and went to a Baptist church, some great teachers. Uh, but I've been very cognizant of starting with my theological, philosophical convictions, and I believe in the authority of scripture, and deriving my political positions from that. It strikes me, and this is getting a little bit off topic, but it strikes me that a lot of folks, good friends of mine, uh, maybe start with their political preferences and back their theology into that. But what you were saying, um, not to get into that, but what you were saying was reminding me, uh, one of the most influential theologians I've studied uh, is um, Heschel, uh, mid 20th century uh, theologian philosopher. And I remember, some, I'm getting chills just thinking about it, something he said, it was along the lines of every moment is another act of creation. And it was within the context of the um, uh, Hebrew phrase, tikkun olam, in other words, um, making the world a better place in common parlance. Mm -hmm. um, and every moment and every position that we take is an opportunity or uh, the Christian way of thinking about it is how, how you know, God's plan is redeeming his, his creation from Genesis through Revelation, redeeming his creation. And um, every moment being another act of creation is an opportunity, as you say, to care for the least of these, which is part of that large project. But I get way, I get way off topic, but I'm so inspired by, by uh, your, your formative years and, and your faith community. So thanks for sharing that. And, and I would just add on, I think, and, I, and as human beings, we all wrestle with this, but I would, I would argue anyone tooth and nail on this point that most people want to live a good life. They want to have and see their families being able to be sustained. They wanna be in environments that are healthy, eat good food, 
you know, enjoy the environment and really have a, what I would call a good life. And so in many ways, theology or religion and politics, when it starts to come into play, it disrupts that very basic notion of having and leading a good life. And, you know, not to minimalize it through like sort of a Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but, you know, get it, food, clothing, shelter, but there's that higher need that folks really want to be able to self-actualize. And not to get too theoretical, but in this country, I think for a lot of Americans, they want to lead a good life. They want to enjoy, you know, what, what democracy provides, the, the sort of notion of a, 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 an American dream, but you start to add in race and class, gender, and all the other tension points, and you get away from the reality that we can actually achieve that by finding commonly what has made most sense for all communities. So I was going to reel you two back in off of that <laughs> philosophical precipice I was alluding to there. Um, you guys definitely should meet in person someday. You have a lot of, of jam there, making beautiful music. Um, but you know, I kind of wanted to segue into how how all of this relates to the history of the NAACP um, and the work that that the NAACP is doing now. Can you give us a, kind of a, a brief history on how we got here? And I know that 112 years is a long <laughs> time to fit into a few minutes. But can you give us some highlights? And particularly, we then want to get into the work that you're doing now. Yeah, so the the history of the association is one that's rooted in a multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-faith reality where you have, you know, black folks and white folks, Jewish community members and, uh, and Christians working together to really form a movement that was born out of addressing Jim Crow, racialized violence, um, you know, the, the notion of really countering those things, but in a very pragmatic way. And so coming out of the Niagara movement and other convenings, the NAACP was born and our first two national presidents were actually Jewish men. And so when we think about the campaign and advocacy work that the early NAACP led, such as addressing lynchings, and you have, you know, Madam C.J. Walker and you know, Mary McLeod Bethune and others really leaning in as black women in a time where women's suffrage wasn't a reality, you started to see this notion that we were gonna leverage policy and practice to change race relations. So think extrajudicial killings that we see now happening with police shootings and even community say shootings like Trayvon Martin and Ahmaud, Ahmaud Arbery. At the time of the early days of the NAACP, Mary McLeod Bethune was asking for special prosecutors to be appointed to investigate these crimes and to address them because the governors and state ledge and mayors of many communities were complicit. So we have seen NAACP be a part of policy advocacy and community mobilization since day one. Fast track to today, our agenda is, is expansive in terms of the range of policies around everything from an inclusive economy to dealing with racial equity, justice reform, not just criminal justice reform, but think the courts, incarceration rates, et cetera, to environmental and climate justice, you know, think the Flint water crisis, but beyond 
to really wrestling with education gaps. And when you add it all up, I think our theory of the case, our fundamental driver is, can we close the gaps that are racialized? So that no matter who you're born, whether you're born a certain color in a certain community, a certain religion, that the outcomes of your life are not driven by race and ethnicity. And if, and if that happens, what can we do to provide policy interventions so that that goes away and those gaps are closed? That for me is how I see the association and really its continued evolution. But fundamentally, all of this is dependent on the volunteers since we're 99% volunteer based and driven who do the real work in a hyper-local way to close those gaps. The mission of the organization is to ensure the political, educational, social, and economic equality of all citizens, achieve equality of rights, and eliminate race prejudice among the citizens of the United States, remove all barriers of racial discrimination through democratic processes. So what are, what are some examples of how this mission was carried out in 2020 uh, with all of its historic challenges? Um, I would lift up three ways in which the organization really, you know, embedded itself in achieving the mission. The first I'll pick on is voting and voting rights, simply because it was an election year. It's a presidential election year, sort of the high watermark or Super Bowl of elections that we have every four years. And our work was really rooted in a couple of realities. The first was making sure that communities had the most, you know, the most options in how they participated in voting. So think, you know, vote by mail expansion, no fault absentee, having drop boxes in states like California, you know, where you could drop off your ballot instead of having to go to a polling place. And if you decided to vote in a polling place, making sure that there was PPE provisions there, equipment, technology, mask, you know, social distancing, we had to actually fight for both expansion of laws to include these things, but also protecting these advancements because some states were like, oh, it's COVID, but we're doing business as usual. And there were elders, for example, who were afraid to go vote in person who normally would go to a polling place. And so we had to say, well, why don't we expand vote by mail so that our seniors could vote from home comfortably without having to make that health decision of exposing themselves to people at a polling place. So when we think about even the voting rights continuum, we spent a lot of money, people power and energy advocating for expansions to make it easier and healthy and safe for folks to be able to vote. And if you notice, I didn't say at all, Republican or Democrat or any race or ethnicity. This was yeah. an ecumenical body of work that benefited all communities. And we did it in partnership with other communities. The, the second body of work I would lift up that really forced us last year to wrestle with racial equity was this thing called the response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And what we found was that for many communities, access and education to healthcare compounded the virus itself. So if you were already living in a community where you had lack of access to healthcare and it wasn't provided either by you know, your employer or by some other federal program, you had many folks who never seen a doctor. And so now they're exposed to this pandemic and what you saw is the haves and the have nots. If you are wealthier and have access, you're gonna probably have better health outcomes under a pandemic than not. So we had to fight for expansion of health access 
testing, equipment, and even funding and tracking the data so that we could see, pick a community, what does COVID look like and how is it nuanced across race, class, ethnicity, gender, so that the right interventions could be supported. Because if you do it in a blind way, you may be missing some of the nuances, like the folks in West Virginia. West Virginia is a very white state and it's not a wealthy state. And so you had a whole lot of poor white folks who didn't have health access where the pandemic was decimating them in a different way. And if you were to you know, stretch that to the community of Baltimore, not too far away, same type of pandemic outcomes in urban black communities. But we needed to know that in order to address it. And so our work was rooted in this notion of COVID no more and continues to this day around really addressing vaccination equity, making sure that there's health equity, and then looking at all of the wraparounds connected to it. And then a third example I will use in 2020, which I think gripped the nation, and it's pretty heartbreaking, is the tension between police and communities. Mm -hmm. And so we have had to really wrestle with what does it mean to reimagine, reassess, and reclaim public safety as the focal point, given that policing last year gave us George Floyd and a Breonna Taylor as emblematic examples of folks who have lost their lives in, in a system that doesn't have to operate that way. And what's fascinating, um, Corey, I would say about that work is you have people who are stuck in this notion that policing has to be the way that it is. When in this nation, we've gone from riding a horse in a buggy to being able to send a billionaire into space, we literally can advance and evolve everything. So why not how we actually address public safety? So some of our work in this category was simply promoting alternatives to policing. And I'll use one example and then I'll stop. Think about folks who have a mental health crisis. Why would you send a police officer who is not trained in any sort of health interventions to go and intervene when someone's having a mental health crisis? The logic is you would have a mental health response team or someone who is trained in that body of work so that you don't end up with the wrong outcomes. Cities like Austin, Texas are testing this type of innovation to reclaim the public safety narrative and make it better for both citizens and community and officers. That's the type of advocacy work that we find ourselves doing on the criminal justice reform framework, even to this day, because we realize whether it's voting or COVID-19 and healthcare or criminal justice reform, we can do better. And if there are racialized disparities and gaps, it's our job to address them, find the solutions at work, and really make sure that our local folks and our national folks are able to lean in to get the job done and move a winning agenda. Jamal, can I break in and ask you to define equity? I heard you repeatedly use equity and not equality. And I know that's the source of confusion in the public discourse around these issues. So can you define that for our audience, please? Yes, I, I would say that our framework around equity is the notion that it's, it's rooted in outcomes. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, no matter what your starting point is, if two individuals choose A, then in, in an equity framework, their outcomes should be similar if all things held at the starting point are the same. Meaning if we both choose A and our outcome is B, that makes sense unless something very, very a variable is thrown in there that makes it different. What we have found in the notion of equality is this framework that, oh, you both get to choose A. 
and that's great. And so we have equality, but we don't necessarily have equity because the outcome really matters. And not to, and to take it from a theoretical frame, because I know that some folks still are probably like, what the heck are you talking about? It really means that, you know, if you are a young man from Texas and you happen to be Latino, and you're also a young woman from Texas, same community, same age, and you happen to be African-American, if both of you choose to go to the same state institution, have the same sort of core, core course of study, your outcome should be pretty similar that you're gonna get a decent job or be able to have the same access to capital to start a business, that you'll be able to have the same sort of quality of life because your arc of engagement in terms of opportunities was exactly the same. That ends up being our notion of an equity frame. Now, it doesn't mean both of you end up with the same amount of income or, you know, that that's sort of personalized. But there should not be this notion that the, the Latino man, no matter what, is always going to fall below the African-American woman in this scenario simply because they're Latino male. And that is what we've seen in this country time and time again, that there's something else in the mix that makes the outcomes not equitable or reaching equity. And I'll actually add another example. I spent a few years working at Amnesty International on um, maternal mortality, just women in, in terms of their rates of um, death, if you will, through childbirth. Mm -hmm. And what we found is that when you measure African-American women against their white counterparts, even when you adjust for income, education, geography, if you hold all things the same, Black women were still dying at a higher rate. And the only conclusion that the research showed us is that it was racialized and that there's something about race in there, either the quality of care not being culturally competent or there's some type of discriminatory practices because there was no other reason other than race that the outcomes weren't equitable. So when we talk about equity, we're really looking at it through that lens of, you know, if the outcomes are not similar or the same, why not? And if it goes down to being racialized, then we got to address it. And so that's why equity is our frame as opposed to the mere notion of equality as a starting point. I've heard you say uh, a few times the NAACP is nonpartisan, but is not blind. And I have been curious if there are current Republican leaders you could envision having productive dialogue or perhaps even partnering with on mutual objectives? So I will say in terms of our political realities in this country, no one Republican is the same, no one Democrat is the same. But when you start to look at the arc of work of both parties, they do splinter and it's pretty dramatic. But what we have seen, for example, historically is that, you know, when you start to really push the needle on the issues, you start to think about what matters most. Having a John McCain actually interrupt getting rid of the ACA because he understood that affordable health care actually benefits all people and all communities and is, and is really a, a tug of war between the haves and the have nots. That was a Republican example of someone who I think broke through the noise to look at an equity framework. You want healthy communities. And if you have healthcare expanded to more people, it makes sense. When you think about, you know, you know, even controversial Republicans, and I'll pick on Michael Bloomberg, for example, who is no longer a Republican, but was a Republican mayor of a city, 
his record on stop and frisk was horrendous. And in the notion of racialized community policing, not so good. But he has turned a major corner in terms of his investment in curbing gun violence and looking at education equity. And so in some ways, from our perspective, how do you find bright spots among all parties or both parties, even though there's you know, it's a, a two-party dominant system where the issues speak to the alliances and not the politics of a party? And that's hard because we're rooted in this notion that you know it's one or the other as opposed to what's best for the American public. And what I would say writ large, and I think things like COVID have really tested the, part, the dual party system, it has affected everyone. And it, and it really has been a nightmare for everyone. And so if the parties can't find resolution around what, where to go and what to invest in, then it ends up being about the parties and not about the people. And so for us as an organization, it's why we're nonpartisan, but at the same time, why we're not blind is that we're not gonna be beholden to any candidate, any politician or any party because we're beholden to the agenda that makes sense for people. And if it comes out of a Republican caucus or a Democratic caucus, we will take it because it's about the outcomes and whether or not we're achieving equity, whether or not we're closing the gaps that we see in terms of disparities and making progress. Now, in, pra in practical terms, it's not that easy, but theoretically that's our framework and how we approach the work. No permanent friends, no permanent enemies. So one of the things that strikes me as being so challenging about working on issues of race and racialization in our country today is that we saw from the latest census figures that our country is more multiracial than it's ever been before, that the some other race category alone or in a combination increased 129% in just 10 years. Um, so that, that speaks to how can you even really tell what is attributable to race when you have multiracial people in the system? I mean, think of our vice president. She's been referred to as black. She's been referred to as South Asian. She's both. And, and so I wonder how that plays into not only the mission of the NAACP, but this concept of attributing racial motives to certain outcomes. Well, Part of the thing that our president and CEO, Derek Johnson, has really been clear about is we have to follow the, the data. And to your point, look at the metrics. So while the census shows that the nation has is becoming more and more diverse, we will not see the majority of this country be um, people of color until 2050 or more closer to 2044. So yes, great improvements in diversity, but the majority of this country is still not people of color. So that's one reality that is just clear. The second reality is when you start to look at the data of representation. So if you were to take all of the elected officials, say in Congress, and even in terms of the White House, you, you're not gonna find that the majority are people of color or women, that it's still predominantly a white male-led political reality. When you look at Fortune 500 companies and their C-suites, same data that it's not actually predominantly women and people of color, it's still white male led. Now that's not to say white men are not good people and that white men can't do what's best for everyone, but it's to say that if there is not equitable representation in all of these spaces at scale, then you get a mixed bag of what, what actually the outcomes are. And from our organization, what we have seen is that nine times out of 10 people are afraid of the other or the unknown. 
And so if you tell someone in 10 years, your community is going to look completely different and the demographic is going to shift, folks are going to really think, what about me and my community? What about me and my family? What about me? And I think what has happened in this racialized world that we live in is that those tensions get aggregated. And it ends up being, if there's more Latinos in my neighborhood than white folks, are they going to take over and push me out? What is, are we going to be silenced? As opposed to thinking about how do we build better together to say, what are the commonalities that we all care about in this community? Like we want to have a good life. We want to sustain our families. We want to be able to practice our own religions. Sort of thinking through that frame and then building what the society should be. And so it's easy to divide by race and ethnicity because in many ways it's visual. You can see the difference, just like it's easy for a lot of folks to divide by gender, because in many ways, cisgender men and cisgender women, there's some, something visible about it. But the, the reality is, is that while it's easy to divide us on these things, it's harder to unite us because it's not rooted in a framework that is based upon how we're different, but where are the similarities? I guess what I was also driving at there, Jamal, is how do you see that affecting the outreach that the NAACP does to potential members? Because if our country is going to become more multi-ethnic, more multi-racial, it's not just black, it's not just brown, it's not just white or any other color of the rainbow. It's, it's, it's an increasing melting pot. So do you foresee, for example, more outreach to other ethnic groups, even outside of the traditional African-American context? Well, what's fascinating, and it's a good question, what's fascinating about at least my organization is that we have never been only a Black organization, Black institution. And so we have, we have and still continue to have multi-ethnic and multi-racial communities that are a part of our internal ecosystem, but that we partner with. I think what it really requires us to do is start to think about how folks of color, communities of color, people say BIPOC, or POCs are impacted in a different way than their white counterparts. And what the data tells us, and I go back to that as always our default, is that people of color have pretty much worse outcomes or negative outcomes when compared to their white counterparts. For example, when I think about women, and you saw this from the Biden administration, they've said they've closed the pay equity gap between men and women to 99 cents on the dollar. That means all women employed by the White House roughly are making 99 cents for every dollar that their male counterpart makes. First thing that's very clear is there's still a disparity. It's not equitable. 99 cents does not equal a dollar. But when you start to unpack the data underneath that, what does it mean for black women who work for the administration, Asian women, Latino women? And so the numbers get even more disparate. The disparity grows so that 99 cents ends up being 80 cents and 70 cents and 60 cents when you start to add in race and ethnicity. So for us, you know, if we're going to speak to those communities, we have to look at the data. And that says it's great by the administration. You've closed the gap in general for women versus men in terms of pay for this administration. You still got work to do. And it's also racialized. And so that's how you attract those community folks to even participate in the enterprise because in Latinx women see themselves in that fight and says, okay, the average is 99 cents on the dollar, but I'm making less than that. And our cohort is making less than that. So there's something amiss for Latinas in the administration. How do we fix that? And I use that as an example, because I think that's how we're gonna continue to do the work is if we can eliminate these disparities, then we work the NAACP out of existence.
I work myself out of a job. And if that means shifting to the communities that are in most need, then there so be it. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I would conclude with is that the, the sad part about all of this is when we look at most of the metrics that we are wrestling with from a policy advocacy frame, African-Americans or the black community end up having the worst disparities, mm-hmm. no matter how we slice it. There's some examples in certain communities where it may not be the case, where it could be a certain type of API community or the Latino community that has a disparity that's really out of control. But nine times out of 10, it's been the black community with the worst disparities. And there's no other conclusion that it's racialized and based on race. So we got to find ways to dig ourselves out of that so that we're not in that situation 10, 20, 30 years from now. I'd like to ask about some more recent developments over the, the, as mentioned, the last year or so has been extremely challenging in so many different ways. I've heard you express the goal of being able to talk about race in a meaningful way and a critical way, if you will, without it dividing us instantly. And if I can get granular here for a second, I've had conversations when I was talking about something like January 6th and a frequent uh, refrain from some folks who still support Trump is something along the lines of, well, where was your outrage when Black Lives Matter was rioting and looting all over the country last summer? And first of all, for the record, it drives me nuts uh, for one thing, because it's a complete mischaracterization of the many, many peaceful protests, nonviolent resistance we saw over the past year, as well as it's just a gross conflation and, and a, a means of distraction. But I bring the example up like that exchange, uh, because if we approach it the right way, it could be an opportunity for more engagement, for more edifying engagements with, with our neighbors. I, I read a lot about and have seen documentaries about the training that that was taking place for folks who were going to sit at the, the counters as, as a, not, a, a demonstration of nonviolent resistance in the late 50s and into the early 60s, that there was training for how to confront what they were inevitably going to have to bear. Is there training or equipment NAACP does for these types of exchanges or for the more benign that I, I alluded to, or perhaps the more intense ones, such as you were talking about before, when those who are demonstrating for racial justice come head to head with the threat of violence? Well, I'll say three things. The first is that as an organization that, that actually focuses in on policy advocacy, any type of violence is not a part of our toolkit. It's not strategically sound. It doesn't make sense for how we see the world. And in many ways, philosophically and pragmatically, it's not how we see change manifesting or happening. And so that that first point is really important, at least to to get clear, is that this is not a debate for us as an organization, that any type of violence is probably not ideal in terms of moving the type of winning agenda in a democracy as we see it. The second reality that I think we have to also face is that insurrection, and attacking our government and attempting what could be seen or characterized by others as some type of coup is both unconstitutional and also not legally permissible. And so there's no way to justify a January 6th reality or moment, no matter how you slice it. Americans have the right to peacefully protest. You have first amendment rights. You you have the right to be angry and to elevate your voice. 
But once you start destroying public property and literally going after elected officials, you have crossed the political threshold into what is known as insurrection. That is a problem and should not be compared with anything else but insurrection, which is not permissible. Third point I would lift up, and this is where it does get tough. Um, during the protests we saw as a response to primarily the George Floyd murder, you did have some looting and rioting in communities. Now this looting and rioting was not exclusively black people. And this looting and rioting is not an ideal outcome. We, nor the movement wants to see that. And so in many ways, you know, it's our job to course correct people to say, how do we work the right types of solutions so it doesn't turn into violence? whether it's violence against property or violence against individuals. But I think it's almost a, 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 a cop out or a dog whistle to compare January 6th in an insurrection activity with you know, community looting and violence. Both are not ideal, but they're very different. And the response to both have to be never again. And, and how do we get to never again, at least on the movement for Black Lives side is we got to reimagine public safety, reimagine policing, and take out this extrajudicial killing reality that we see that is more prevalent in Black and Brown communities between police and communities. On the insurrection side, we actually have to dig into misinformation and disinformation. And when an election is won or lost and has been certified, the winners have to move forward and those who did not win have to move forward, but not in the form of political violence. Again, very different scenarios, but there are clear solutions. And the onus is on us to live in those solution realities and not try to, to pick apart and say, this is equal to that. Because at the end of the day, if we got it right, you wouldn't have protests and looting as a response to police injustices, nor would you have folks trying to storm the Capitol because they've been fed a big lie that someone lost an did not lose an election when they actually did. So just a quick follow up. I'm sorry about the prior question. It was a really long way around the barn to get to it. But I appreciate all of that, that, that response. Uh, but just to zero in on it, is there any sort of training or equipment uh, equipping that the NAACP does for folks that are committed to nonviolent resistance or peaceful protest? Yeah, so our volunteer infrastructure and model is, you know, if you join the NAACP, either as a general member or a part of a community-based NAACP, whether it's a college campus or it's literally in the community, we do a range of trainings around how to achieve wins from a policy advocacy framework that are rooted completely in a nonviolent context. And because we cover so many topics in a hyper-local way, it could be that you are a part of a training on how to do a demonstration in a political context that's nonviolent in order to lift up a certain political or policy outcome, or you're trained on how to actually use tools that are really metrically driven so that you can call your senator, text your senator, email your senator as an example on a certain issue, and to do that at scale so that they know to vote yes or no on a certain policy outcome. When we give folks work to do that's very tangible in that way, then we don't have to tell you to not be violent because the framework and the tools you're using are inherently nonviolent. And, it, and that's how we approach it as an organization. Now I will say we do not do trainings where we're teaching people 
how to do nonviolent activism in a theoretical framework, it's all rooted in actually pragmatic work because our job is to, to move an agenda. So I would say that's how we approach it. There are probably other organizations and partners who may do more nuanced trainings in that way. Um, I think of maybe Greenpeace, for example, an environmental organization, they have a nonviolent um, training track that I've seen them use that's much more theoretical. But for us, we still connect it to the pragmatic because we want folks to do something as opposed to only understanding what it means to be nonviolent. We want them to actually do the work. And so our trainings are rooted in, in that framework more, more than not. So I want to move ahead to all of the work that you've done, both in the 16 and 2020 election and going forward, the voter registration and activity that you have in the works. Um, a big focus of the NAACP moving into the midterms is turnout. 2020's black turnout came out at about 63%, still exceeding that of Latinos or Asian American voters, but it remains below the rates of uh, black voters in uh, the elections uh, for Barack Obama. First off, how do you view that number of 63%? And secondly, how do you plan to increase turnout, especially in a midterm year, which is never a, an, easy, uh, an easy accomplishment for any organization? Yeah, I, I would say um, a couple of things about just voter turnout. Voter turnout in the US is hard and complicated because the way in which the voting system is set up is that it's hyper-local for, for the most part. There's about 10,000 voter jurisdictions, and they all don't operate quite the same. And so when we think about motivating folks to vote and to turn out, the hard part is just getting them educated on what that process is. So first and foremost, we are always looking for broader reforms that make it easy and streamlined for eligible voters to be able to participate. The US, when compared to other industrialized and Western countries, our vote turnout and vote performance is low. And that's because we have too many artificial barriers in the way period. As it relates to the African-American community and African-American voters, our goal is always to get as many folks to participate as possible. Barack Obama's two elections were an anomaly. And when you have an anomaly, I think we have to admit that. It's almost like a Michael Jordan only comes along once <laughs> in a lifetime. Or, you know, and so when you, yeah. or, there's only one Barbara Streisand. There's not, the, an anomaly is an anomaly. And so when you have a figure that can galvanize and motivate a certain group of folks to participate at the highest level, we can't replicate that energy. But what we can do, and what we did in 2020, was focusing in on getting folks connected to the issues they cared about and making the connection really explicit that these are politicians who are making these decisions. COVID unfortunately was a gift and a curse in that process. It taught a lot of folks that wait, my governor, my senator, heck, my mayor are making decisions that affect my daily life. So whether or not I have access to extended unemployment insurance, there's a senator, a governor, and a mayor who are fighting for or against that. And I can see that. So us being able to connect it, not from a theory, but in pra practical terms, really, I think, motivated folks to participate in the vote. And it wasn't because you had a unicorn like a Barack Obama at the top of the ticket. It's because folks really wanted to claim back their voice and really make sure that their political voice by proxy was the right voice. I think for 2022, it's going to be hard. Folks have amnesia. 
not just in the black community, but in all communities that, you know, the, the gains that we've made, the fact that there was a bipartisan, I'm gonna say that again, a bipartisan infrastructure package <laughs> fast. Yay. Don't jinx it. It's gonna happen because the house is gonna ratify it. It'll be great. Now it's not $4 trillion, which is what I would hope for. It's, a, it's about 1 trillion. But the fact that that happened, you can't take for granted. And that's because we swung who represents us in the Senate. It's a different composition. The president is a different person. How do we make sure that folks see their reality in these types of gains is hard, but we got to keep it going. And one of the things that, you know, I think life teaches all of us is that for most people who live in the United States of America, politicians and politics is it's tiring. It's exhausting. You can get fatigued real quick. And so how do you galvanize and energize folks around the things they care about? And so in many ways, 2022 is going to be a test of connecting the dots in a hyper-local way. What does this mean for Georgians to vote? What does this mean for Californians to vote, depending on the elections that are happening? And that is the work of not just organizations like mine, but a lot of organizations who really care about making life better for the communities they serve. Well, there are certain obstacles to voting coming up. We, it's yet to be seen exactly how redistricting is going to affect the next uh. election. <laughs> um, but uh, w- one thing I did want to ask you about uh, for folks who do follow this, numerous states have been have, they, they've put forward laws that will affect uh, 2022, 2024, all upcoming elections. Which states or specific laws are you looking at that are cause for the greatest concern? Well, there's approximately 400 plus what what we would consider to be voter suppression laws that have been introduced and at various levels passed this year, which is an exponential jump over any other year. And so we have been paying attention, of course, to what happened in Georgia, Florida, and most recently Texas, And the reason why these states, these big states matter is because when you can find ways to pass laws that cut off even a certain percentage of voters being able to participate, you determine who the winner and loser is simply because of that. One of the things we saw, for example, in the state of Florida, if you cut early vote by eight hours, you actually can suppress over 200,000 voters participating. Wow. That means 200,000 people just won't vote because of scheduling and you cut early vote by eight hours or in certain states where you have the erroneous photo ID laws. So I'll pick on the state of Georgia. If you are a student and you go to a state institution that issues a state ID, you would think that that qualifies as a valid form of ID. The, The laws are being constructed so that you have to have a state ID issued from the Department of Motor Vehicles even though you have a state ID as a student. Why wouldn't the same state that issues both IDs qualify? Those nuances mean you could suppress thousands of college students who tend to vote in a different way because they're younger and looking at the world through a different lens from even participating because they may not drive or they may not have a state issued ID through the Department of Motor Vehicles. And when you get in the weeds of those types of nuances, that's where voter suppression starts to become real and say, well, why would we want that to be the reality? The only conclusion is you don't want those folks to vote in mass, whoever that population is. So you don't want working people to vote in mass if you're saying you can only vote on these days, these hours. 
Because if I have children, I'm trying to navigate my job, if there's two weeks of early vote and I can vote on Saturday and Sunday, the likelihood of me voting goes way up. But if you drop it to one day and that's it, you may lose my vote and the data tells us that. So because both sides know this, these laws are designed to either curtail those votes or to make sure that those votes are enhanced, meaning folks have access. We're watching all of them at every level. And then the sad part is the real counterbalance, unfortunately, is voter turnout. We have to spend a lot of money and time having neighbors talk to neighbors, sending folks pieces of mail and text messages, running digital and radio ads. It's it's a, you know billions of dollars spent to get folks to participate when the roadblocks that are being thrown up are malicious and intentional for various sectors of the community. I want to get to that question of redistricting because uh, that, that Corey raised. He talked about the the and I've talked also about the census. And I'm wondering what you have been able to conclude so far. I know we just started getting the census data in in the last really few weeks, and we're taping this um, at the end of August here. Um, how is the NAACP actually involved in the redrawing of these lines for new districts around the country? And is there still space for influence along those lines? So given that redistricting is not a, a, a household discussion topic, <laughs> we the NAACP have had to do a few things as, as it relates to redistricting. The first is really educating our members and community members and with partners around the fact that fair and inclusive maps being drawn mm -hmm. is a proactive process. It is not something that happens behind a curtain and that is too impossible to understand. And so we focused one pillar on this notion of just educating community members that redistricting is happening to you and around you right now. The second piece that we lean in on, in multiple states, we have an army of folks who get trained on how to draw maps. So we can teach all of us how to draw a map using certain software. The reality is the masses aren't gonna be doing that. But if you have a cadre of folks who understand how maps are drawn, what they should look like and could look like in terms of being inclusive, then you end up with folks who can draw maps and offer them as alternatives to maps that may be drawn by say their state legislature. And each state is different. And so it is state by state. So we go through this process of assessing which states are on the right track, which states are on the wrong track. And even then you have to have community members in those states who understand and how to look at maps and say, the map that was drawn for my district, it has cut out 40,000 black folks who live next door. I want them included or vice versa. The map so that was drawing your own maps. Is that what I'm hearing? Yes, we draw our own to maps. Influence the discussion. Oh, that's fascinating. Yes. So we have to hire demographers alongside volunteers to draw those maps. We also have an army of folks who weigh in on the maps. So people who may not draw the maps, but can tell you, if you redraw my neighborhood and my community in this way, you're cutting out an entire population of folks who we're aligned with, we think, and are connected to either from some type of community of interest. So we end up really teaching folks either how to draw maps or assess maps. But then there's a, a third bucket, which unfortunately is going to be used a lot in many states, is we have a lot of lawyers <laughs> who are going to be suing because maps are going to be drawn by a whole bunch of characters <laughs> who either want to have their own power protected 
who will, will draw maps to cut out certain communities because it doesn't help their political interests. And so there's a period after map drawing has concluded in states where you can have public comment, but also litigation. And so in some states, that litigation or those lawsuits can drag out two, three, four years. I know Texas, we were in lawsuits from the last redistricting cycle well into 2015 wow. before it got settled. While the process is, is happening now and will have immediate impacts next year, in some states, it's going to be a fight forward because we already know the political makeup of those states is that they're going to want to draw maps yeah. that exclude people of color and that limit you know, college students and that make sure that working class communities are clustered in one group and don't have a lot of power. We know that that's going to happen because we've seen it. And so we're preparing for that. So the NAACP has to really fight on many fronts, educating our folks to really give testimony, public comment, and weigh in on the front end, also drawing maps, alternative maps that can be used in court or also used as considerations for final maps, but then having a litigation strategy where if we have to take it to court, we're ready to sue because something is misaligned with, say, the Voting Rights Act or misaligned with policies and practices that are about being inclusive. So ah, the redistricting work is a, is, it's a heavy burden. It's a nuanced burden, but it's critically important because that's why we do the census at the end of the day is to account for who's in this country, where do they live, what representation looks like, and what types of federal dollars and other dollars need to be allocated to support those communities. It critically matters. And so we're in the fight forward on that front. I do want to follow up on the work that you're doing on Capitol Hill, uh, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act introduced just before we're taping actually in the House finally. Um, what problems does this piece of legislation seek to address? And can you help us understand this concept of pre-clearance in terms of addressing discrimination against Black voters? Well, we're excited that the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act has passed the U.S. House, and we know now it's in the hands of the U.S. Senate. Uh, what preclearance actually provided, and I want to be clear that we're actually trying to restore something that we had for decades that was taken away. So we're almost getting back to a level playing field of where we already were. This is not something new. This is something the courts took away in 2015, away. right? Yes. So what, what preclearance really does is says for a certain number of states, given their history and political composition, that before they make any new laws on voting, voting rights, redistricting is, is linked to that as well, even though there's a different section that covers redistricting, they have to get clearance from the Department of Justice because they've been bad actors in the past, meaning they passed laws that have been about mm. racialized voter suppression. About 15 states fell into this, this bucket. That's been taken away, that pre-clearance. So that's why Georgia can pass a ridiculous law like they just passed where you can't give water to folks who are waiting in line for, for voting. And in a, under the Voting Rights Advancement Act that we want passed, Georgia would have to actually work with the DOJ, Department of Justice, and say, here's what we want to do. And they would do the analytics, the metrics, and then say, wait a minute, this is racially motivated, or this is going to disproportionately affect these communities that should be protected. You can't do it. 
So we want preclearance brought back so that we don't have to fight these erroneous laws in these major states that have a history and a major history of doing voter suppression. So that's really what the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act is all about at the end of the day. But it's not new. It's restoring what we had before because these states have said, no, we're not bad actors. We should be able to do this on our own without any oversight. And guess what we have? 400 new laws that are all rooted in voter suppression. So it's a, it's a big lie, if you will, that the states don't need preclearance when they're demonstrating it. And so we're gonna be in court suing and fighting to reverse these laws. And nine times out of 10, we're gonna win because they are racially motivated. Preclearance would have prevented that from happening in the first place. I really appreciate you being here, Jamal. I am uh, going away a lot more informed than I was before we started this conversation and honored to spend some time with you. I hope we get to spend some time again. So we have one last question and then some very important business. Uh, the last question is, do you have any questions for us? You know, I, I would say um, for, first and foremost, thank you both for this space and this conversation. Our goal is to drive volunteerism. So folks visiting NAACP.org or fighting for our vote.org. Either way, just getting plugged in. I think the question I have for you is given all of this, and we started off with Invictus, a very heavy poem, you know, <laughs> what what brings you hope in terms of the possibilities given the conversation we just had today? What are the things that you can say if we get this right or if we work on this and focus on this? we can have a better you know, outcome in our country. We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Do you wanna hit that first, Jess? You want me I to- I love how you always let me answer first to buy <laughs> yourself some time, Corey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I don't know that this is specific to this conversation in particular, but the ability to listen and have a space where you can listen to each other you know, there are probably people listening that didn't agree with everything we asked or everything that you said or everything that you replied, but the ability to have a conversation and learn particularly about terms that we're hearing thrown around, you know, around the conversation on, on race. I think that's been really important for us to learn and convey and explore. And that's part of the reason why we ask these questions about definitions, because I think it's important for us to be on a level playing field when we're talking about these things and for us to know what, we're, what we mean and what we're conveying when we use certain words. Yeah, that's a better answer than I think I can give. But um, th this is what comes to mind for me. Um, reasons to be hopeful, ironically, come out of conditions in our culture that might cause the greatest reason to be concerned, frankly, to, 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 yeah. to worry. And that is, in particular, I'm beginning to reframe this notion of this side and the other side. We often think about Republican, Democrat, right, left. I don't think of it that way. Uh, because I think what has been clarified definitely over the last five years is there is a broad coalition of folks who still think that virtues like truth, civility, being neighborly, um, or as we think of it in Christian, uh, Christian scripture, the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that these are indeed virtues that there's a broad coalition of folks who might have voted for Romney, who might have voted for McCain, who might have voted Republican all their lives, as well as folks who might have voted Democrat all their lives. But there's a broad coalition of folks who can agree on this. And there's a yes, there is a, a group of folks 
who've thrown out the idea that civility is important, that a commitment to nonviolence is important because they've elevated um, this notion that we have to fight against, you know, anybody that they see as the radical left, you know, and that thus all other virtues are thrown out. That's different than right left. That's different than progressive conservative. So I'm encouraged to see, I mean, just looking at the last DNC, again, not to get too political about it. I was so encouraged to see Meg Whitman, Christine Todd Whitman, Colin Powell uh, speak at the DNC, as well as folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. So that gives me reason to hope, not that those folks are going to vote for a Democratic president, you know, but that, that we can all get in a room around the same virtual table and agree on certain basic principles. So longer answer maybe than you were looking for, but that gives me reason to hope. Uh, so I know we're, we're uh, up on time here, but really important. How can we find information about you, the NAACP, and how folks can support your efforts? Um, simply go to naacp.org. Um, and if you go to that website, everything about our work, our membership, our activism, opportunities to plug in are there. Um, there's even a couple of pages I think that I'm on and have a bio, um, but definitely want to continue. And I think Jess, you, you said it best, people having dialogue and really being able to listen and make the connection. And to you, Corey, in terms of folks coming together, the unusual suspects to find paths forward is really, at the end of the day, I believe how we get out of you know, the, the darkness that sometimes is plaguing our communities and the uphill battles that we see both today and tomorrow in, in terms of our national agenda. Awesome. I so appreciate your time. I so appreciate getting to know you better. And I certainly hope that this is not the last time we get to hang out. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you both. Take care. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you appreciate what you heard here, please go to iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and leave a review. That really helps move us up the chart so others can find out what we're up to here. For Ronnie Nathan, I'm Corey Nathan, and we've been talking politics and religion without killing each other. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.